Please be seated. Good morning. Uh, those of you who are visiting, just so you know, our, our, normal, our normal practice here, at least as far as sermons go, is to go through a book in the Bible, you know, verse by verse, what we call exegetical. We're currently in Luke, then we're going to go through Acts, and that'll probably take a little while. But the elders in our church have a- asked me a, number, a couple of years ago, I guess it was, to uh, once a month, the first Sunday of every month, to engage on a topic, we call it a hot topic, that has more immediate application to the current world in which we live. The today's hot topic is the patriarchy, so this will be the last day of our church. (laughs) What a nice turnout we have today. Also, during the Sunday school hour, we're going to be talking about free will. What is it? Do we have it? Do we not have it? What's the term mean? So today, and by the way, those of you who don't know, maybe those of you who are listening, uh, you know, online or something, we really encourage during that Sunday school hour, I spend about 20 minutes on the Westminster Confession, we're going to talk about free will, but then we open it up for questions and answers, and I really encourage you that if you feel like you've not understood something I've said, or you have a, a question, to come and ask, but if, maybe you're the kind of person who doesn't want to raise their hand in a group, and I understand that, and ask a question, we have an elder up here sitting with me with a little computer device, and you can actually uh, email or you know, go online and ask your question you know, online. You don't have to get up and raise your hand. But we really like to know what your questions are when it comes. Clarity is important. Do you understand what's being said? Now, I'm going to open up this morning with a reading from Ephesians 5, 25 through 28. It's a pretty common passage talking about the responsibility of husbands, and as I was even praying this morning and thinking about this, this uh, very, very hot topic, I was thinking to myself, what am, what am I hoping to achieve in this sermon? What, what, do, what would I, in terms of the way I'm writing this, want you to walk out with? Well, let me tell you a few things that popped into my head. One is, I want, you know, the, the young women, my own well, one of my daughters is married. One's, you know, not married yet. And I want not only them, but the young women in this church to know what a godly man is. Like, what is a godly man? Because that's who I want to be with. I want to marry a godly man. I have two sons. I want them to be godly men. I want that to be a quest. I want, I want them to be the kind of man that a godly woman is looking at going, that's what I'm looking for. I want the married men in this church to understand what it means to be a godly husband and a godly father. I want the women in this church to encourage that in their husband, to encourage them to be who God has called them to be. And even if you don't fall into any of those categories, you should understand that, what it means to be a godly father. Because above and beyond all those things, the main goal in any sermon is that we walk away with an elevated understanding of our Father in heaven. The main, I think, the main goal, the main application in any sermon should be worship. That when, that when we move from the sermon to the Lord's Supper to the next hymn, that we have a keener, greater, deeper, richer understanding of the God who has beckoned us to call him Father. So those are the goals as we kind of set out. Ephesians 5, 25 through 28, hear now the word of God. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, truly we live in a world where it seems that which was so obvious, really not that long ago, has become so confused. So help us, Father, to understand the timeless message in your eternal word when it comes to what it means to be a godly father, what it means to be a godly husband, a godly man. We do pray that we would live in a world where women would value such things and encourage such things. So we do pray this morning this would take place in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Judges in the Bible records a wild story about a woman named J.L. J.L. was... She was instrumental in delivering the Israelites from, from King Jabin of, of, of Canaan. Here's what happened. There was this guy, Sisera, and he was a commander in Jabin's army. And he thought he could find refuge in Jael's house. So, so he goes, knocks on the door, hey, can you take care of me? Clearly, he is the evil enemy of God's people. And J.L. welcomes him in. Come on in. Have a seat. Let me get you a blanket. Can I get some water? Yeah, I'll give you some milk. Let me cover you. And then he's like, so can you keep an eye on the door? Keep an eye on the door, sweetie, while I take some, get some shut-eye here. I've got you covered. So now that he is fully endued with a sense of comfort, she proceeds to grab a tent peg and a mallet and, quote, drove the peg into his temple. You know, it's funny, the Renaissance artists, there are a lot of paintings about, they were like, I'm surprised this not, has not showed up in more movies. But the, the artists during, you know, the Renaissance and Reformation, a lot, of, a lot of pictures. Well, what does the Bible say about her behavior? Because women weren't even supposed to wear gear designed for the warrior. Was she cursed? Was she judged for taking matters into her own hands? Well, as you continue to read the text, it appears not. Although Jael's not as significant as Mary, right? Mary, who's blessed among women. We see the same words ascribed to her in the very next chapter in Judges 5.24. She is considered the most blessed among women. They even, they even, sometimes you ever read the Bible and just scratch your head? Because in the very next chapter, they actually write a song about what happened. And I was reading this song, and I have to say, this song is about as violent as any of the current rap songs that I wish they didn't play at events, you know. This song, this could have been written by Jay-Z. I don't know. 
things. I, you know, I, I don't really even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but it was Deborah and Barack singing about how J.L., quote, crushed his head and shattered and pierced his temple. I don't know what the tune was, right? But those are the lyrics of the song. So, whatever your understanding of patriarchy is, biblically, it does not exclude the possibility of a woman with a mallet and a tent peg. (laughs) All, All to say, it's not that simple of a topic. So, taking a break from from Luke, we're going to engage on this most basic fundamental understanding of humanity, that is men and women. I mean, it may seem obvious, but there is a current attack, right, on what is a man, what is a woman. That, that may, that, you know, like I said, 50 years ago, this wouldn't have been a hot topic at all. But this is the fundamental makeup of humanity, men and women. One of my roommates in college became a military doctor, and he'd go, he went out on a bunch of, you know, missions, you know, deployed into the Middle East, right in the middle of the fighting or what have you. And I remember, you know, we had a conversation one time, and he made this comment. He goes, you know what, with, even with all the technology, with all the bombs, with, you know, with all that stuff that we have, when it gets down to it, I'm convinced that the battle, the final battle, is going to be hand-to-hand combat. And as much as we have these big images and big pictures... The argument here is, what's going on in your own household? What is your view of who you are as a man, your view of who you are as a woman? That basic, simple understanding. Because you know the Bible, that's where it starts. We talk about creation. If you read about creation in Genesis, the first five days of creation go pretty fast. I mean, for what's made in those five days, it goes pretty fast. But when you get to day six, things come to a screeching halt. When you come to God going, I'm going to make man. I'm going to make man, male and female. In my image, everything stops. We talked about this in our Westminster Confession class, you know, because you have God in eternity past decreeing what's going to take place. You know, we have, but then you have creation where God creates the stage for his providence to take place. It's almost as if those first first five days, God is just making the stage for for the epitome, for the acme of his creative genius, and that is the making of man, male and female. It's almost like all of creation is God building a house for his kids. The central focus of creation. We see it in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Men and women are created in the image of God. In the understanding of humanity, which would seek to undermine the inherent beauty and value in either of the sexes, is patently unbiblical. So whatever you hear this morning, if you're hearing that, either I've made a mistake or you're not listening right. The question before us now, the question before us this morning is, does this mean that men and women are the same in design? That men and women are the same in role? Is there no man or woman when it comes to God? 
In the second chapter of Genesis, now keep in mind, this is before the fall. In the second chapter of Genesis, we read what really amounts to be a supplemental account of creation, which contains the somewhat unpopular words. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. By the way, that's the only thing prior to the fall that wasn't good, that man should be alone. I will make him a helper for him. All right, so now we've got this role. God has given the man, and then it's not good for him to do this alone, so he creates a, help, a helper suitable for the task. A lot of people don't like that. So, with the equality of value and beauty ever lighting the room, we must not miss the message of the roles and responsibilities of the sexes. Can't tell you what an ego battle this becomes. It becomes such a pride battle in our own minds to even talk about this because right away we just kind of feel like, you know, some of the men are like puffed up and some of the women feel insulted and you got to, we've got to set that aside. And we've got to ask God, what is your design? Are men and women exactly the same in their design? And are they exactly the same in terms of the roles that you have for them in this world in which we live? We see this at the very beginning of the Bible, at creation. And let me tell you, if you pull the bow back and your arrow is off one inch here in the beginning, how far is it going to be off when it gets to the target? It's going to be miles off. And we live in a world where everybody's bumping the bow all over the place and arrows are flying all over. We have no idea what's going on. We've dismissed it. I think this morning it would be overly ambitious to engage in the entire dynamic of the non-binary movement. I talked about that in another hot topic you can access on, online. This morning it's going to have to be sufficient to restrict ourselves to the views that, at very least, seek to present themselves as Christian views. So what I'm going to talk about this morning are views that are within the church, or at the very least within kind of traditional. And when I hear the word traditional, it's such a safe word. People I agree with, you know, who are popular people, they use the word traditional, but you know as well as I that the word traditional is a weak, it's kind of a weak word. Because what tradition are you talking about? Whose tradition? And that's malleable. Really what we want to do is go, what's the biblical position. And so I'm going to give you three this morning that all, and everybody within the church will hold to at least one of these three positions. And I think that you can hold to these three positions and still be a church. I think it can still be Christian, but I will say this. The more biblical we get, the more hostile the world is to it. And that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, that's, that's declared in the scriptures. So let me start. The first, and I would argue, least biblical view of men and women is known as egalitarianism. Or, some people call it equalitarianism. The world, the world is generally very tolerant of this view. Egalitarianism is, is, egalitarianism is the philosophy derived 
from a misunderstanding of the Apostle Paul in a number of places. And just so you know, egalitarianism is kind of like, you know what? In Christ, the whole idea of men and women, that's gone. That's gone. So the egalitarian churches would have women pastors, women elders, and so forth. And I think it comes, and I'll just start where it comes from. It starts from a misunderstanding of Galatians 3.28. If you've argued for, you know, against egalitarianism at some point, this is going to come up. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. End of argument, egalitarianism. I just think it's a lack of maybe critical thinking. I, I hate to question people's motives, but sometimes when I listen to otherwise intelligent people arrive at conclusions, I feel like you're either mentally not tough enough to hang into the position or you're just accommodating the world in which you live. I don't know where it's coming from, but you know what? When Paul wrote this, were there Jews and Greeks? Yeah, yeah there were Jews and Greeks. Paul wrote in detail about his his kinsmen according to the flesh. Who are Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh? Jew. If there's no Jew or Greek, why are you writing about your kinsmen according to the flesh? You just said here they don't exist. Now you've got a whole big three chapters talking about them in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Of course there were Jews. Were there slaves and free people when Paul was writing? Of course there were slaves and free people. Paul had written to slaves on how they should interact with their masters. If there's no slaves, why are you writing to the slaves? And you're writing to them as slaves. Slaves do this. Were there male and female? Paul wrote about husbands and wives should function. Husbands do this. Wives do that. Women do this. Men do that. Paul wrote that elders should be a one-woman man. Those are not gender-neutral terms, right? If there's no male or female, why are you saying that an elder should be a one-woman man? The elder should be a one-person person. Whether intentional or not, I can't say, but the egalitarian seems to miss Paul's context. His context in that passage, just so you know, is that if you belong to Christ, whether you're a Jew, Greek, slave, free, male or female, you are heirs according to the promise. Neither your gender, your nationality, your social status, your intellect, your talent, your virtue can separate a true believer from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus and the riches of heaven. That's what he's saying there. He's not saying there's actually no Jew, no Greek, nor slave, nor free man, nor male, nor female. It's just, you're just reading your Bible incorrectly. You're reading your Bible in such a way that it doesn't work with the rest of your Bible. Egalitarians have gone so far as to create their own translation of the Bible. It's called the Inclusive Bible, the first egalitarian translation. So they're, they're really going for it, man. Now, to be sure, there are passages, just in case somebody wants to dig in here, there are passages in good translations where a gender-neutral word would be sufficient, right? The, the Greek word anthropos could be, could be translated person. Sometimes it's translated man. 
And we can get into that in Q&A and why I think that's not a bad translation, but it could be person rather than man. But egalitarians function as if the new covenant has entirely disavowed the clear Old Testament teaching on the roles of men and women. They, they act as if it applies everywhere. Nothing can be further from the truth, and I can't go too far into this in detail, but Jesus picked 12 men to be apostles. Even though, and you'll, you, here's where you'll hear people go, well, that's because he wanted to be sensitive to the culture in which he lived. Really? Because I don't remember Jesus being that way at all. Or the, I heard this, you know, the argument is, that, well, but at the time, women, you know, they weren't educated. But, you know, when the apostles were confronted by the Sanhedrin, they were recognized as being uneducated. So that doesn't seem to work either. I don't think Jesus cared about the culture in terms of being, like, overthrown by the culture. He all the time did counter-cultural things. And yet, even though he had no fear of the culture and wasn't not going to accommodate the culture, he picked 12 men to be apostles. As a matter of fact, even later on, when Judas betrayed Jesus and they picked another apostle, it was from among the men. That would have been a perfect opportunity to have a woman apostle because now we are in the full new covenant swing. It didn't happen. Paul taught that elders should be men. He also taught that women should not teach or have authority over a man. These, these, in order for those things not to be in the Bible, boy, you really got to make the Bible mean something other than what it means. The, the egalitarian position is so patently unbiblical that it requires Christians intentionally ignore or what I have found, emotively dismiss the plain and obvious reading of Scripture. The remaining two positions aren't quite as simple to analyze. I'm going to, I'm going to move, just so you understand, I'm going to move from a popular position to a not-so-popular position, and then I'm going to finish with a very unpopular position. So be it. I've been nervous about this all week. But I, I, remember, I remember when I was, Dan was talking about Villa Sorrento, you know, when I, 25 years I led a Bible study there, mostly widows. And I remember I had written a sermon and then found out that when some people were coming to church that week who I knew well enough to know they weren't going to like what I had written in the sermon. And I, I like to be sensitive to my audience, you know, and I was thinking about it and I shared it with the women in the group, and there was this one lady who had been a World War II missionary. Like, she would come to the Bible study with her Greek New Testament. How's that not intimidating? And when I was kind of sharing my struggle with her, she, you know, she just landed on me with both feet, right? She's like, you know what? If you wrote a sermon and you believe God wants you to give that sermon, you better give that sermon no matter who shows up at church on Sunday. Like, she was this, like... <laughs> Man, I saw her reaching for her mallet. <laughs> the next, you have egalitarianism, then you have complementarianism. And complementarianism, I think, has won the day among Orthodox Christians. I, for the most part, would use that word to describe myself, with some exceptions. <clears throat> complementarianism, it's a, in case you don't know, I mean, it's a, 
it's pretty common, but it's a fairly modern term. Wayne Grudem and John Piper came up with the term in the 80s, so it's not something that was all the way, all the way back. But as I was writing this, I realized egalitarianism and complementarianism both are very smooth off the palate, right? One sounds like equal, and the other one sounds like I'm paying you a compliment. But it's not that kind of compliment. It's the idea of one thing complementing something else. This idea that men and women are different and they work in a way that kind of takes into consideration the strengths and the weaknesses of each other. The complementarianism promotes equality with beneficial differences. Adam was given a helper fit for him. Rocky Balboa, I think, said it best when his brother, well, Polly, brother-in-law, Polly wants to know what Rocky sees in Adrian. All right, because if you watch this great masterpiece of a movie, <laughs> Adrian starts off not all that attractive, and Rocky kind of spots a diamond in the rough, and Polly's like, what do you see in my sister? And Rocky, his response was, She's got gaps. I got gaps. Together we fill gaps. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's brilliant complementarianism. Right? I think it's a pretty solid position, biblically. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time critiquing it. The world doesn't particularly care for the complementary view but it doesn't hate you as long as you keep it within the boundaries of your church. You gotta, you know, don't push it too far into the culture. Churches that believe that men should be pastors and elders and deacons are for the most part complementarian. Complementarians also believe that fathers should be the head of the household. Enough. Good enough for now. How does that differ from the hot topic this morning? Patriarchy. Egalitarianism and complementarian, they're smooth off the tongue. Patriarchy, not so much. I was reminded this morning of the Barbie movie. I, I never saw it. And it is not on my short list. But apparently the word patriarchy comes up all the time. Patriarchy is more like a power tool, right? You have your Milwaukee Sawzaw and your Black and Decker patriarchy, and with those two you can tear your whole house down. What does it mean? It means father rule. That's what it means. Patriarchy means father rule. Rule And it's kind of an unfiltered complementarianism. It tends to go beyond the church, our family, and its application. Anything from, from combat, you know, patriarchs are going, we should not send women into combat. It's unbiblical to have women in that, operating in that capacity. Some of them would go so far as civic office. They would basically say those roles, if you keep pushing it, and I, again, I don't agree with all of what they say, but if you keep pushing it, they're like going, men need to take responsibility for the entire culture in every single way. Now, as you might expect, there's a pretty broad spectrum among self-proclaimed patriarchists, myself included, on these matters. Like, for example, I've, I don't think that in 
there's any scenario, biblically, where you could allow a woman pastor or a woman elder. I'm not sure I feel the same way or think the same way in terms of civic leadership. Matter of fact, as I was examining this, one of the most outspoken patriarchists that I was kind of looking at going, okay, what do you guys think? Because I, I want to know what everybody thinks, right? And what their biblical arguments. One, one, argue, one guy argued going, look, if I was around in the 80s in England, I would have voted for Margaret Thatcher. All right, so his patriarchy doesn't go to the extent where he wouldn't do that. And I was thinking, I, I'll just tell you right now. I, if Condoleezza Rice ran for president, I'd probably vote for her. I think she's better than everybody. She's smart, she's humble, she's faithful, and what have you. So I could see me voting for Condoleezza. There's the exit, man. While I don't think, by the way, that it's a good idea to embrace a position simply because the world hates it, I do think the adage is true that you can measure the integrity of a person based upon the character of their enemies. I think we've got to be careful that we're not, we don't want to hold a position just because the world doesn't like it. Um, although I have to say, when there are certain people holding a position who I've become familiar with in the culture in which we live, I'm so convinced that they're wrong that whatever the other position is, I'm already in default position to the other. But we shouldn't do that, right? Things got to be examined on their own merit. But I will say this, that the darkest in this dark world hate the idea of a patriarchy. They don't, they don't view it the way they view complementarianism and certainly not a gal. They hate it and view it as the reason Everything is bad. One needn't descend to the basement of your local library to find venomous assessments of the so-called patriarchy. Secular sociologists define it as a system of social structures and practices in which men dominate, oppress, and exploit women. That's the world's view of patriarchy. One of the strategies employed by the patriarchists in order to keep exploiting this, this function, according to Shulamith Firestone, who's a radical libertarian feminist, is to convince women. This is what men do, the patriarchal men. They convince women that there is joy in giving birth, which she labels a patriarchal myth. All right, look at it. I've never given birth, and I'm, bi I'm binary. Right? But I'll tell you what, if, the, if joy in giving birth is a myth, then almost every woman I know who's had a baby should get an Academy Award for faking the joy. Other theorists, Marion Young, Heidi Hartman, they are, you have to understand where this is coming from. They are, they are socialist Marxist feminists. That, I hope that when you kind of get on board with something going on in your culture, whether it's Black Lives Matter or critical race theory, you name it, that you examine the charter of the organization that you're posting on your page. 
Look, look what they believe, where they're coming from. So many of them are coming from this atheistic, Marxist life and worldview. Along with many movements, what you'll find is that those who are steaming against the patriarchy believe one of the answers is to overturn what they call the heteropatriarchal family. So you're examining it, go, okay, well, what is that? You know, so I'm like, well, that's kind of a big word. What does it mean? You know what it means? The family. Mom, dad, junior, and sis. That's the problem. We need to get rid of that. See, their crosshairs are on that which God has ordained in the very beginning. In short, when the world fixes their gaze upon patriarchy, the words dominance, oppression, repression, inferiority, and subservience are its assessment, and these are words that do not arise from a dispassionate evaluation. These are angry words. It's an angry group of people. The contraption of patriarchy is, according to its critics, the cause for almost every evil from the dawn of man. And their understanding of human history, which is mostly patriarchal, is, when we're, is a history where men and women have basically hated each other from the very beginning. They've never gotten along. Men have abused Women, women resent men, and that goes all the way back to the beginning. And you know what? That is simply not the case. We don't live, even in the fall, in a world where men and women have just hated each other from the very beginning. If anything, in the movement that we're currently in, we're seeing more of an antipathy between men and women than we've ever seen. The problem is not patriarchy. You know what the problem is? Sin. In fact, Human history has been a testimony to men loving, caring, protecting, and providing for their wives, and wives thriving in an environment where men take responsibility to heart. That's, that's the environment that you want. True, and I'm going to go here now, because it's one thing to evaluate the world, what the world is saying, but biblical patriarchy is not about oppression Biblical patriarchy is not about paying less money for doing the same job. It's not about power-mongering at the expense of the well-being of women. I think it is dangerously ironic that those who rage against patriarchy always focus on positions of power. They are not looking for equality in ditch-digging, in brick-laying. They're not looking for equality in roofing which is, it's 98% men doing that. It is power. And let me tell you this, people who are hungry for power, regardless of their sex, are dangerous people. We, you know, people are nominated to be elders in our church. And when you look at the qualifications for an elder, some of it's theological, but a lot of it is character. And if you have somebody who wants to be an elder because you can perceive that they just want to be in charge, they want the power. I know as an elder, I'll do everything I can to make sure they never get on that elder board. People who want power are dangerous people. And the supposed solution 
to the current patriarchal problem, I would argue, has had a dismal effect upon the world in which we live. We're kind of going, look at we don't want men to be biblical men. So what's the alternative? What's been happening? I think Kevin DeYoung, I think, puts it pretty accurately when he wrote this. What school or church or city center or rural hamlet is better off when fathers no longer rule? Where communities of women and children can no longer depend upon men to protect and provide. The result is not freedom and independence. Fifty years of social science research confirms what common sense and natural law never forgot, not to mention biblical law. As go the men, so goes the health of families and neighborhoods. The choice is not between patriarchy and enlightened democracy, but between patriarchy and anarchy. Now, an entire conference can be dedicated to this topic. I didn't even get into what the Bible says, not only about the role, but about the inherent difference between men and women. Men and women are different. They're not, I mean, they're different physically, they're different emotionally. Data shows they're even different intellectually. Women are smart in certain things, men are smarter. Women, men, men and women are different. I mean, anybody who has eyes can see that. Anybody who's got even the remotest level of intellect can see that's the truth. And we work hard to kind of unisex everybody, and it's just not working. Anyway, so I'm not, I'm not getting into We could talk about that during Q&A if you'd like, but I'm not getting into that. But I want to finish with two basic points. First, this. Like anything else, any system, any structure, patriarchy is not the cure for sin. You, in the Old Testament, God was not unclear about liturgy. You know, priests do that. You sprinkle this. You show up on this day. You're in there. For, like very detailed liturgy in the church. But a perfectly given liturgy could not overcome sin nature. So when we're looking for a system to be the cure of our problems, that's a fool's errand, my friend, because there is no system. Just a sports illustration popped into my head. I don't know if it'll work. But I know as a coach, <clears throat> you, sh you do the best you can with your X's and O's to put in the best lineup that you could possibly put in. But if there's a player on the other team who's six foot eight and they have a 40-inch jump, and they can hit the ball straight down or slam dunk the ball. Your, your lineup, no matter how perfect it is, isn't going to stop that guy. Right? You, you just can't overcome kind of the nature of things. And the nature of things in terms of humanity is that we're sinners. So even if we have the perfect patriarchal system, if we said, we're going to do a conference, and here's exactly man's role, and here's exactly woman's role, and we all figured it out, we knew it perfectly. You know what still exists? You know what abides? Our sin nature. So the idea that we're going to have a system that's going to work, I, would, I have seen a lot of teams that I know are coached pretty poorly, but they have such natural talent, they win games. Well, that should not be an excuse for poor leadership, but we need to understand that the system isn't going to rescue us if we're not willing to be 
faithful. I have, let me tell you, I have up close and personal observed men who in the name of patriarchy have been self-centered, harsh, uncaring, and cruel. And their wives feel trapped and their kids can't wait to get out of the house. And they're all like, well, I'm in charge. And their view of, like, I'm in charge is they, they march into the house, honey, give me the clicker and a beer and keep yourself busy. And they're just tempting her to look for the mallet. That is not patriarchy, right? That is self-centeredness. That's sinfulness. That is not you being a father. That is not you being in really in control. You know what's, what's interesting, this idea of being in charge. When my kids were little, they wanted to be in charge. Mom and dad are leaving. I'll be in charge. Then all of a sudden, you begin to realize this, and you see it in the parables too. What happens when the person in charge is is kind of running the show, and then in the parable, the king leaves, right? And then he shows back up, and things are all a mess. Who's in trouble? The person in charge. The person in charge is the person who takes responsibility. You know, when we're young, we think to ourselves, I'm going to be in charge because I get to tell other people what to do, and I like to tell other people what to do. But then you begin to realize, no, if I'm in charge, it means that I'm the one responsible for what takes place in the room. And when the master comes back, he's going to look at me and go, how did you let this mess take place? I think about that all the time as an elder when it tells me in Hebrews 10, 13 that I'm accountable to God for your souls. I think that way more than I think of, hey, I get to tell Gino what to do, as if that would ever have happened. <laughs> well, I can tell that Gino what to do because he's my son. <laughs> But we have, a, we have an topsy-turvy, upside-down, perverted view of what leadership actually is. And that is my final point here. In order for the patriarchy to produce that which is lovely, we have to develop a biblical understanding of fatherhood. It is interesting that that word father rule has become such an ugly word. I mean, that, I hope that just pops out at you. Father rule, somehow the enemy in our culture has turned it into a dirty word. I have not used that, I have not seen that word used one time in our culture in a positive way, ever, by anybody. And even the church runs away from it. I had a fellow pastor who I tend to agree with on a lot of things, and he texted me yesterday and he said, I noticed that you're giving a sermon on patriarchy. He goes, what did he say? I'll defend you at your trial. <laughs> when Jesus was asked how we should pray, you know what he, what he said? The first thing he said? He said, in this manner, therefore, pray, our Father who art in heaven. You know what the Greek word there is for father? Pater. Where we get the word? Patriarchy. Now, keep this in mind, okay? I mentioned this to a buddy of mine the other day at the beach. He said he'd never heard this. I thought it was interesting that he'd never heard this. Maybe it's common or not. God, we learn in John chapter 4 that God is spirit. So God, the Father, 
really the spirit and Jesus as God, doesn't have body parts. God the Father, just to make this clear to dial in, doesn't have any of the biological makeup that we would use to define what a man is. He's spirit. Right? So you, you're like going, well, God, God the Father, you know, it's like, if you go to the Sistine Chapel, right, you got um, creation. Right? Who wrote, who drew that picture? Um, Michelangelo, right? And you got the Father, right? And it's a guy. It's one of the reasons why we shouldn't draw pictures of, of God, because God is spirit. You can't draw a picture of God. And I think that muddies the waters here, because God is spirit. He doesn't have the body parts. And yet, in the Bible, over and over and over, we are called to call him what? Father. He is, a, see, there are attributes of a father that he has that we as fathers should seek to imitate. What, it wasn't as if God created everything, didn't know what to call himself, and said, you know, I'm looking at the dads down here, maybe I'll call myself father. No, it's the dads down here, the fathers down here, need to look to God and go, what does God do as a father? Because that's what I need to do as a father. And what does he do? He loves us. He provides for us. He protects us. He knows us. He never abandons us. If we just could do those five things, this world would be, a, you know, if dads were that way, this whole world would be a different place. Dads who leave, dads who take off, dads who don't think it's their responsibility to make sure their family is cared for and fed and clothed and have, you know, medical attention when they, well, that is no father. They have a perverted understanding of what it means to be a father. And I understand that they have a perverted understanding because fatherhood is on the rocks. It's on the way out. This whole idea that this is my responsibility is no longer something that, that like, is controlling the culture in which we live. But as a church, we need, to, we need to recognize that dark place where that's coming from. If fathers on earth sought to emulate their father in heaven, the patriarchy would be the beautiful thing that God designed it to be. Now, to take this one step further, God the Father, because of his great love for us, sent who? The most famous verse in the Bible, right? Although Eric Watkins, one of the buddy of mine, pastor down in south somewhere, I was at a conference he was speaking at. He goes, you know, the, the favorite verse in the Bible used to be the, the Shema, right? Hero Israel, the Lord is one. That was everybody's favorite verse. Then, everybody's favorite verse became John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his son. He goes, now the favorite verse in the world is judge not lest ye be judged. That's the verse the world knows by heart. But the father sent the son. And now we begin to kind of have more of a palpable tactile, seeable, touchable expression of what it means to be a father. Because in Isaiah 9, Jesus is actually called everlasting father. So in a certain sense, he's a father. But Paul, as we opened up with, will present Jesus as a groom. And you can put it back up there now. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So you, got, you understand here, we got 
the husband-wife, okay, the, the, the male-female relationship, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You know, young ladies, are you looking for a man who's taking that seriously? Wives, are you encouraging your husband to be that? Husbands, are you playing that role even if you don't feel encouraged to play it? Verse 25 in that passage is the one that hits me really hard. It hit, you know, when I started doing my research on that, he gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the Greek word there, gave or give, is the same word used in Matthew 17, 22, where Jesus says he's going to, be, going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Jesus, in his love for his bride, orchestrated his own betrayal on behalf of his bride. You know, sometimes I'll do, I've done counseling and the guy will say something like, well, you know what, this just the way I am. She doesn't understand, I am the way I am, you know, like Popeye, right? I am what I am. You know, get over yourself with I am what I am. You know, I, I got to be me. Really? From what I'm saying, you should be anything but you. <laughs> but what Jesus did in his love was he, he, he orchestrated his own betrayal. It wasn't as if it just happened to him. Like, he, from eternity past, agreed that this is what he would do because of his great love for his bride. Now, wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a world full of men who are going, that's the way I'm going to love my bride. I'm going to, I'm going to live for her. Because Jesus didn't just die for his bride. He lived for his bride. I'm going to live for her. I'm going to die for her. That is what I'm about. I am going to wash her with the water of the word that she might be presented holy and blameless before the Lord. Let me tell you, if we actually present that idea of patriarchy, you'd have to be straight from hell to disagree with it. And I'm convinced that that would still happen. Are men willing to take this kind of action, this kind of responsibility? Are we looking for that? Are we training them to be that? Or, or, or is your idea of patriarchy that you're in charge? If the father in heaven or the groom of the bride becomes the model for men, then patriarchy becomes something beautiful. But that will only happen when we place our trust in him as our groom. Let's pray. Father in heaven... We, we, we do pray that we would not give in and succumb to the powerful connivings of the enemy as he surrounds us in a world that would seek to diminish that which you've created, us, male and female, in your image. We do pray that we would seek to recognize, whether we're men or women, recognize the way you've made us, the roles you have for us, and honor you by pursuing that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we do pray, Father, that even as we continue to grow in our faith, 
that we would have a deeper and richer understanding of our Father in heaven, that we might recognize what, in fact, you have done for us when we could not do it for ourselves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.